Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of The Display Show. I'm Brian Berkeley, your host for engaging discussions with key industry leaders and influencers from across the display ecosystem. Today's guest is Michael Zink, who works in Burbank, California, at Warner Media, where he is Vice President of Emerging and Creative Technologies. Mike is responsible for exploring emerging technologies to enhance Warner's storytelling capabilities across different platforms. His work includes assessing the latest technologies, developing innovative experiences, and integrating new solutions into creative production workflows. Mike started at Warner Brothers in 2014, and he is the first representative of the content creation community to join us here on The Display Show. Prior to joining Warner, he was at Technicolor Incorporated for over 10 years, where among other roles, he was Vice President of Technology Strategy. Earlier in his career, Mike worked for several media production facilities in Germany. In addition to his VP role at Warner, Mike is also President and Chairman of the Ultra High Definition Alliance. And as of this year, he is Education Vice President at the Society for Motion Picture and Television Engineers, or SIMPTI for short. Mike is a SIMPTI fellow and a major influencer within and around the creative community. In our conversation, Mike and I talked about colors in outer space, looking beyond pointers gamut, display requirements for Hollywood content, some of the more challenging movie scenes, the importance of maintaining creative intent, the origins of filmmaker mode, and a call to action to display makers. Please don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell for notifications when new episodes are released. Now, on with the show. Mike, thanks for joining us today and welcome to The Display Show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor being able to join you here. Great. Well, let's start off with Warner. I, I think all of our viewers must have heard of Warner, the studio that's brought us so many amazing films. A partial list would include uh, Harry Potter series, Lord of the Rings series, Batman, Batman vs. Superman, the Dark Knight series, the Hobbit series, Suicide Squad, The Matrix and sequels, Gravity, Godzilla, The Hangover, uh, the Sherlock Holmes series, and the list just goes on and on. Warner is huge. Please tell us about your role at Warner. So my role is um, heading up an, what's called an emerging and creative technology group. And the goal of that group is really to explore new technologies in order to further storytelling. And it's fairly broad in terms of what we try to tackle, but I would probably broadly put it into about three categories. One is kind of more the traditional category of improving entertainment experiences, whether that's theatrically or in the home. Um, a lot of display um, information in there, a lot of display work in there, and probably a lot of what we're going to talk about today. The second kind of broad category is um, that um, I have a team of people that is very focused on immersive media. It's really trying to figure out how can we do storytelling across multiple different platforms, things like virtual reality, augmented reality, or mixed reality, however you want to call it. Um, but also trying to leverage artificial intelligence quite a bit and trying to figure out how can we create, for instance, virtual characters. As you might know, Warner has a very rich portfolio of um, virtual characters from Looney Tunes all the way to Lego Batman, for instance, that we ended up doing at some point in time. And how can we 
create those virtual characters and have them interact with users in a very engaging way, a very different way, and being able to kind of like tell stories across different platforms. And a third um, bucket essentially is a team that's focused on neuroscience, where we're really trying to understand consumers' reactions to content. Um, we use a lot of biometric sensors for those types of things. In the short term, we're using it a lot for our consumer insights groups, where they're really trying to understand visceral responses from consumers on how are they reacting to content, um, different age groups, different um, demographics, um, what resonates, what doesn't resonate. Longer term, it's actually even more interesting where you can potentially use those biometric feedback loops for real-time reactions as part of the narrative. How can we build that into the narrative and help the story unfold very unique to each individual consumer? So a lot of very wide things um, and incredibly exciting. And I'm certainly not bored anytime soon. Well, it is incredible to hear all the things that you're involved in and you're deeply involved in the creative process. And you're also well connected to the creative community. So I'm wondering to Hollywood, Besides showing the content in the theaters, how important is the display reproduction capability in the home? That's an excellent question. And I have to say that it is incredibly important. Um, and I think a really big testament to that is that over the last probably decade or so, the relationship between the consumer electronics industry and studios has just gotten much, much stronger. Um, I think one of the best examples is um, even, I know we'll talk about it a little bit later, is the formation of the UHD Alliance. Because when we had the transition from HD to 4K, it was really interesting because to some degree, studios, at least our studio at the time, was looking at it and said, well, just having more pixels is probably not going to be sufficient in order to really get consumers a much more differentiated experience. There's got to be something else. For us, that else was high dynamic range and white color gamut. So I think it was really important as part of that process to have that ongoing dialogue with manufacturers to understand where they're coming from, to under, for them to understand where we're coming from and what matters. And at the same time, I have to say that I've learned a huge amount about the display industry, what drives them, um, what is important to them. Um, one thing I never really realized that much until really looking into that is the importance of energy star, energy efficiency standards, essentially. And those things ultimately directly impact our business because whatever we're doing with regards to energy efficiency really drives the display design potentially if we're looking at backlight designs. And to some degree, you can actually really start seeing that sometimes you have very similar goals or you can achieve the similar things where we're interested in, for instance, having rather than agile TVs, being able to have full array backlight TVs. Those coincidentally are also a lot more energy efficient compared to um, all the other ones because you're able to control the different zones. And if the entire display isn't fully bright, then well, you're a lot more energy efficient. So I think learning a lot about what is important to manufacturers and for us to share what is meaningful for us as storytellers, I think um, really helps 
get everyone moving in the same direction and ultimately get better products and better experiences for consumers. You know, you work with some amazing people. You work with directors. I remember one event where you introduced Christopher Nolan uh, uh, to us, just to name one. He was the director for Dark Knight uh, and, and many other films. You work with color graders and, and uh, a huge number of creatives. So one thing I wanted to do today was to spend some time to talk about what's important to those folks. And uh, starting with color, uh, do directors value wide color gamut reproduction capability? And you know, what about beyond DCI capability? How important is that to the creatives? Um, that's a good question. One caveat I want to do right out of the gate, though, is when we when I'm talking about creatives, creatives is not really a homogenous group. Um, as you might imagine, it's very diverse. They all have very different opinions. But what I'm happy to share with is certainly my views, certainly what um, we're looking at it from a Warner perspective. And a lot of that is informed on, like you said, a lot of conversations with the creative community as well. Now, white color gamut and more color capabilities is something that I think is really, really important. Um, when we look historically a little bit, it's always been the hero grade that a filmmaker has always done was always in a theater, right? You do it there, you see it on a big screen. Um, and they used to have DCI-P3. So that was kind of like their bounding box for what they're able to play with. And then when you went to the home, you kind of like had to dumb it all down into a Rec 709 container where you're a lot more constrained. Now, one beautiful thing with 4K and Ultra HD is that you're able to get much closer to DCI-P3. Ideally, you get 100% there. And now you're able to at least transport that experience from a theater back into the home, which is really great. Now, talking about beyond DCI, that's an interesting question. Um, there's certainly some arguments um, that reflective colors, um, or most of the reflective colors that are covered in the pointer's gamut, is efficiently covered by DCI-P3, and you don't necessarily need much more. But I do believe that there are plenty of use cases where even wider color gamuts um, would be really beneficial. Animation is always one example where you're not bound by what are the reflective surface colors on Earth. Um, you can do a lot more with that. And I think generally speaking, creative or filmmakers don't necessarily complain if they have more tools to play with. So I think they would certainly welcome that. Um, one other comment on that as well, and it's something that never really occurred to me until recently. We had a, recently a SIMT Plus event a couple of months ago, and it was an event in collaboration with NASA and with Baylor University, where they were talking about multi-primary approaches. So it was really interesting to hear from NASA because their perspective was they have all these astronauts that fly out into space and they see all these beautiful colors and all this beautiful imagery and they have surprisingly a lot of cameras on the um, ISS, for instance. And then they come back and I see what it looks like on this place that we're able to have here. And they're like, this is not quite what it looked like. So they've been working with Baylor, they've been working with a couple of other universities as well to kind of like figure out how can we go beyond DCI-P3 and have much wider color gamut. And their approach has been using more than three primaries in order to really get a non-triangular um, shape. And I thought that was really interesting because 
pointers gamut probably doesn't apply to outer space. So um, I thought that was a really interesting use case. And now imagine for things like you mentioned gravity, for instance, there's a lot of storylines that could be in out of space. There's a lot of content that NASA actually makes available for filmmakers as well that they capture out there. And if you're able to actually reproduce it in a much more faithful way through multi-primary and beyond DCI-P3 colors, that would be phenomenal. You know, I was going to ask you later on if, if CGI, animation, and other synthetic types of content uh, create more demands on displays. And, and it sounds like it does. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does. And I think um, you don't have all of these boundaries that are imposed to you by what you typically look at in your surroundings um, by using synthetic content. Um, we've already seen some of those examples. I think I recall Pixar had shown a, had created a version of the Inside Out, I think it was. Um, in It was an SDR version at the time, but it was pushing all the way to right 2020. And they had released that um, for some demos at IBC a few years ago um, in a theater um, where they had a, a laser projector that was able to reproduce 2020 colors, or at least close to it. And it was interesting because it shows you that creatives are thinking of how far can we push this. And if the capabilities are there, there's no doubt that they will find a way to use that. Well, I'm also going to ask about luminance range. You know, as, as we know, and many of our viewers know, the PQ curve goes all the way up to 10,000 nits. Uh, most uh, displays don't get anywhere near that. And in fact, no commercial grade displays get to uh, 10,000 nits at this point. But does Hollywood want 10,000 nits on the high end? And, and also, what about the low gray reproduction? Yeah, I think this, it's interesting because the CE industry or the display industry has oftentimes, when we're talking about um, high dynamic range, been very much focused on the big numbers, right? It's a higher number means it's more capability, it's better. But um, reproducing detail in the dark areas is equally important. In fact, some might argue it's potentially even more important because if you look at most movies, there, a lot of stuff happens in dark areas. And there's a lot of nuance that you want to get across. There's a lot of detail that they capture, that they painstakingly put into the masters. And if you then only have a display that is able to essentially chop it all off and it's black and all of that information is lost, that's a, that's a real shame. So I think both accurate reproduction on the highlights and in the shadow areas is equally important. Um, but I think we also need to recognize that there's a difference between when we're talking about highlights, there's certain, certain things about speculars where you have a very small portion of the screen that gets really bright. And then you have the scenarios where the entire screen gets fairly bright. And I think those are slightly different as well. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute actually, because that begs another really interesting question. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you about uh, resolution. We're, we're hearing a lot about 8K, um, you know, now that everybody's stepped up to UHD, which is 4K. I'm wondering, okay, is 8K important for displays or, or other capabilities more important? Resolution, in my mind, is a tricky one um, because the benefits 
that you would get from it very heavily depend on the viewing environment. What is the screen size? How far away from the screen are you sitting? And it also kind of depends on the type of content that you're actually showing. Now, we've always had this question inside Warner about why aren't you producing for 8K content? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense? And our businesses usually very quickly turn around to our group and say, should we or should we not? So what we ended up doing almost two years ago now, um, thanks to COVID, um, is we had performed some perceptual testing where we actually compared 8K and 4K content. And we had done that not just by ourselves, but um, in collaboration with um, Amazon, collaboration with Pixar, um, LG Electronics had provided um, an 8K display at the time. And we had looped in the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, to actually have some critical eyes on the content. Now, when we did that, we um, used about seven pieces of content. And it was a real combination between live action on film. We used some pieces, two, two clips from Dunkirk, for instance. Um, we used um, some digital content that was shot with digital, digital cinema cameras. Um, we had animation pics actually rendered out certain scenes um, in 8K resolution. And then we had some content where that was kind of like nature documentary in order to kind of like have a really broad array of different types of content. Um, we then put about 139 people in front of the display and did a double blind study. So they didn't know what they were seeing. They were seeing the 4K and the 8K and then going back and forth. And then they had to grade it on a seven point scale. And they essentially had to say like, both versions that I saw, they're either the same, they're slightly better, better or much better. Um, and what we also ended up doing before we actually allowed them to do the testing is we had them do a vision test um, because we wanted to figure out do we have people that are really good eyesight or does it not really matter that much? And it turned out there was about 34% of the people that had 20-20 vision. Um, we had about 39% of the people that had worse than 20-20 vision and 27, the remainder was actually better than 2020. Um, what was interesting about all of this is at the end of it, um, the results when we statistically analyzed it was that, I think we phrased it as, the results were that 8K was marginally slightly better. So off the kind of like scale from zero to three, slightly better, better, much better, it was somewhere between zero and one for most pieces. However, there were two clips in all that. And one was a rendered clip from, uh, from Pixar from Bugs Life. And the other thing was um, something that um, Stacy Spears shot on, a, I think, a red camera. And there's a nature documentary that, were, that actually reached the number one that went to slightly better. And they were, they, compared to all the other clips, performed quite a bit better than um, all the others. And what we ended up doing is we did a lot of analysis around trying to figure out what actually gave us that difference. And it turns out that what really drives the experience is if you have high frequency content, it really also needs to be in an area where you're naturally looking. Um, we had on Dunkirk, for instance, there was a lot of high frequency content that was like in a code and a little bit here and there and in the background. It's not necessarily where the main character was. It was not necessarily where you focused um, at the moment either. Whereas with Bugs Life, it was right kind of like a straw piece of straw and a little bug right in front of it where you're naturally looking if you have a lot more high frequency content it makes sense that people will then actually um, be able to see the difference 
So we usually try to approach it from a more scientific perspective and really understand what drives um, experiences, what doesn't. Um, I'm still a little bit in the, in the camp of questioning what the real benefit is for consumers, at least in terms of 8K display, um, simply because a lot of them sit probably way too far away um, and the viewing environments probably don't really give you all of that um, experience. Um, if people and listeners are interested in more detail on the testing we did, we did publish a, a paper in the Simpty Motion Imaging Journal about a year ago in July 2020, and that has a lot more details on that as well. So I highly recommend people to take a look at that if they are curious. Okay, and we'll, we'll try to put up the URL for that paper as well. Um, you know, um, it's so interesting. It sounds like, in terms of resolution, there's a lot of variables. It's uh, distance, viewing distance dependent. It's uh, viewing environment dependent. Depends on the content. Um, and uh, maybe also has some dependence on the viewer. But uh, I know that the industry has been pushing 8K uh, quite a bit lately. Um, what other display hardware and software capabilities are most important to the studios? For example, not just color range, but what about color accuracy? Well, obviously, color accuracy from our perspective is really important. Um, our colorists and the entire creative teams, they spent an awful lot of time on making sure that content looks the way they want it to look. And um, kind of like transporting that look that they bake into the master, into the home, is something that they feel very strongly about. Now, we're also not total dreamers. Um, we also realize that um, different displays have very different capabilities, so certainly between models. A $500 TV is a lot less accurate, likely, than a $2,000 display. Um, but what is important in those instances is that you have proper tone mapping. And that is something that I think is really important, both in the color side and on the luminance range as well. Um, simply because we know that displays are likely not able to fully reproduce what's baked into the master. So once you push it all down and tone map it down to what the display will actually be able to do, we do want to make sure that um, the creative intent is maintained. It's challenging, but I think it's also um, really important um, to go through that process and do it right. Um, in terms of other capabilities, I think there's two that I probably think are important to talk about for a little bit. One is bit depth and the other one is frame rate. Um, I think increasing bit depth, especially when we went from 8K to 10K as part of going to Ultra HD and certainly for HDR, was really, really important. I think 8K or 8-bit HDR would probably be horrible. So it's good that we went up to 10, but I don't think we should stop there. I think if you can go to 12 bits or potentially 16 at some point, um, that would be even better. In terms of frame rate, that's an interesting one because um, most of the Hollywood movies obviously are shot in 24 frames a second with a few exceptions. Um, there's some arguments um, that at this frame rate, at 24 frames a second, especially when you go to really large screens and really high contrast, that it might exhibit some negative artifacts like judder. Um, certainly more than usual, judder is oftentimes there and desired, but sometimes it's accentuated. Um, there's obviously certain ways to mitigate this, um, and it's 
an ongoing conversation with the industry. And I think it's important for the creative community and the display manufacturers to stay in conversation there on how to really deal with these things. Um, simply because the CE industry, um, and I'm probably not going to make many friends right now, but they don't necessarily have a great reputation when it comes to implementing motion smoothing and motion interpolation algorithms. Um, overall, I would say that I don't know that there's any particular hardware or software capability that I feel is particularly important. Um, I think more so it's the combination of all of that resolution, color gamut, high dynamic range, bit depth, um, frame rate, and, and audio to some degree as well. And um, I think the other thing to keep in mind as well is that the viewing experience overall heavily depends on the environment, the viewing environment. Am I in a fairly dark lit room or am I right outside? And I think all of these things should really be factored into the presentation of the content if possible at least. Now, let me briefly come back to your very earlier question about what's important to a filmmaker. And I think what I would argue is that they ultimately primarily care about their creative intent being delivered faithfully to living room screens so that consumers can enjoy it the way it was intended. And that desire may sometimes be at odds with what display manufacturers would like to do because they would like to differentiate. They want to show their products are better than somebody else's products. And that's all well and good and nice and understood. Um, but I think that also underlines why a collaboration between the display industry and the creative community is so important and so crucial because I think Manufacturers, we, wel we welcome manufacturers pushing the envelope and making products much better and brighter and more capable. But I think it's equally important to make sure that the content gets ultimately displayed with uh, creative intent maintained. So I'm wondering along the lines of content, is there any content that is the most demanding on, on displays? Um, I'm thinking of a couple of examples right, right off the bat. One is the bright and saturated colors in the fireworks scene from Gatsby, or, or maybe the birth uh, scene from Inside Out. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think the demands really come from different, all sorts of different places. Um, Gatsby is an interesting one and it's challenging, but for different reasons than Inside Out. Um, Gatsby, Recall is it's it's a night scene. Um, it's outside. There's a lot of um, bright specular details, um, but then it also turns around and you see the faces of a lot of the people. That in, uh, remember in the 709, the SDR version, these faces usually get blown out, whereas in HDR you maintain all that detail and you can actually see their faces. But that obviously is a very different challenge than what you described with um, Inside Out, where the opening scene, the birth scene, is essentially a black screen for quite a few seconds, and you just hear dialogue. And then the birth occurs, and the entire screen gets bright, it gets full white, and as bright as possible. Now, many displays, as we all know, are power limited. So that is a real challenge for them to do that. And it also means that your eyeballs have to adapt. You're kind of like adapted to a dark environment, and now you get this full brightness in your face. And I think it does make it very, very challenging. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there is this big difference between 
being able to create a really high peak brightness for certain speculars versus a high peak brightness if it's the full screen. And I think we do need to recognize that those two things are different, even though we always just talk about high brightness capabilities. So, so to take them separately, you know, there, there are others who have stated that high luminance is only needed for small portions of the screen, but I'm hearing something different from you. Uh, there's at least some cases where that's not, that's not right. There is, at the beginning, um, when a lot of the UHD video formats were defined, um, it was, there was a lot of debates about that because um, obviously, especially when we talk about 10,000 nits um, that PQ is capable of, um, that potentially creates a lot of problems. And certainly a lot of the display manufacturers at the time, rightfully so, were scared. They're like, well, you're going to need sunglasses if you're watching 10,000 nits coming off the screen full frame. And I think from a content provider perspective, there was always this notion that, well, we really are mostly interested in these speculars that are really bright rather than the full frame. It's really not in our interest to essentially blind our consumers as exceptions, because we just serve them inside out. Um, but um, for the most part, um, you really don't want that. But what we came up with at the time were some kind of like guidelines for, um, I think the Blu-ray Disc Association at the time came up with some guidelines that said, well, specular highlights, meaning brightness values of above a thousand nits should really just be very small portions of the screen. And then the APL or the average brightness of the frame should probably be limited to about 400 nits. And I think that was a really good compromise, um, certainly in the beginning in order to kind of like bridge that gap and explain that like what we're really interested in are these specular highlights um, by and large. But there's always some examples and some filmmakers will push the envelope and make it much, much brighter. But obviously, I don't know that there's a real expectation that a display, a consumer display is able to to do full brightness and the same capabilities as it's doing that for, for specular highlights. Well, we were talking about this offline. You were saying that the whole point of the inside out birth scene was to make the viewer uncomfortable because that's what being born is like. That's why you end up crying and, and you know, as a baby. And, and uh, so there are at least some use cases where um, um, the envelope gets pushed. Um, oh, absolutely. And there's a couple of other examples too. Um, um, we've had a couple of titles where um, content, the, the, the protagonist had some sort of flashback scenes and the whole screen gets really bright in order to kind of like uh, make it very visual on something's different and they're suffering or they're having a real visceral experience. And pushing the whole brightness of these things is something that um, you potentially do in those scenarios. That's what I'm saying. I think there's all, you will always find some use cases and edge cases where filmmakers will push the envelope. Um, but by and large, I think, um, at least originally, the goal was to really focus on bright specular highlights in order to really create that additional range. And on the topic of bright specular highlights, so there are some set manufacturers who have suggested that preserving color for highlights is, is not so important hey, if it's just bright white, that's good enough uh, for highlights. Uh, but then that fireworks scene uh, is an example of where you have high luminance content that is not only bright, but also saturated in color. Um, so is that like another area where the envelope is being pushed as well? Um, 
I mean, obviously, from a creative perspective, we would always like all the colors at all the luminances at any size on the screen um, and to be always be what we want it to be. Um, nobody really likes any arbitrary limitation, that's for sure. But we also recognize there's realities to that. Um, there's always trade-offs. Um, there's certain things where maybe a TV set cannot go as bright if you want to maintain all of the colors um, or there's certain other limitations around that. Um, I think from my perspective, I keep coming back to the importance of tone mapping for these types of things, simply because it's crucial to maintain the creative intent and each display will have different capabilities and being able to, if you have a display that is able to maintain all the colors to all the brightness levels, that is wonderful. But um, I think we're probably far away from every display being able to do that. And ultimately they will all get one master. So we want to make sure that that master is represented as faithfully as possible. This naturally leads to a discussion about content metadata. And um, you know a lot about this topic. Uh, some of our viewers may not know so much about it. So for starters and for their benefit, maybe you can explain what metadata is and how the display uses it or should use sure. it. So content metadata is this concept of describing technical parameters of the content itself so that that information can be provided to a display and the display can make better choices, especially when it comes to things like tone mapping. Now, you might recall that um, the HDR10 format, for instance, most people focus on the fact that it is using SMPTE 2084, the PQ curve in terms of the encoding, but it also includes typically SMPTE 2086, which is mastering display metadata. Now, that metadata describes what mastering monitor I used. But that doesn't really say anything about the content. So I can have the most sophisticated mastering monitor, and maybe I master or I'm creating a piece of content that is in black and white. So describing the monitor, while helpful, doesn't really tell me the full story. So what we ended up doing um, was to come up with additional metadata that can go along as part of the HDL10 format. And um, at the time, it was really this notion of, let's at least create some sort of what we call static metadata that at least describes, so there's two terms for it, max CLL and max fall. Max CLL is maximum content light level that essentially describes the brightest pixel in the entire film. And max fall is maximum frame average light level. You can equate that to an APL essentially. What is the brightest overall frame in the, in the entire, entire movie. Now, the reason we invented that is, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, that as part of the discussions inside the Blu-ray Disc Association at the time, it was this distinction between how bright you need content to be for speculars versus for the, for the entire frame. So these two um, parameters were kind of like developed at Mike Smith, one of the uh, collaborators of mine here at Warner, kind of came up with that at the time to really help describe those um, content um, parameters. Now, where they become really useful, for instance, let me give you a real-time example, is that let's say you have a display that is capable of 750 nits, yet you've mastered on a pulsar, which is able of mastering 4,000 nits. But if you, for instance, only have a piece of content that 
isn't very bright, maybe the maximum, the max CLL is only 500 nits, the display actually doesn't need to do any sort of tone mapping. Yet if you don't use that metadata and you don't look at the content metadata itself, and instead you just look at what mastering monitor was used, you would take whatever is in the master, assume it's mastered to 4,000 nit, map it all the way down to 750 nit, which means the actual content, the brightest pixel in that piece of content, 500 nits, will now be displayed much lower than that and content will end up looking very dark. And I think we've seen a lot of complaints early on uh, when it came to HDR from consumers saying HDR looks too dark. And I think a lot of those um, instances were caused by those types of um, kind of bad judgments is probably the wrong term, but certainly by using the wrong type of information. So I think it was always helpful using as much information as possible. And I think it would be great for, for, for display manufacturers to really pay attention to the different types of metadata that is available. And um, we wanted to make sure that we have or are providing information about what content metadata is there. Now, as I said, static metadata is that it's static. It just describes one snapshot over the entire feature film. Um, there's obviously a lot richer uh, metadata and dynamic metadata that describes that frame by frame. And for a lot of content, that metadata is available as well. And I think manufacturers should choose to use that one um, simply because it gives them more information. I think from a display perspective, more information it's typically better if you want to maintain the creative intent. Sure. So, for example, HDR10 Plus is dynamic metadata uh, versus HDR10 Straight, which is uh, static, right? Um, Correct. Now, this this and is so a, Dolby Vision as well. Th this topic of content metadata is very relevant, and I'm going to mention uh, it is because you very recently of this year. Uh, Actually, August 6th of this year, you and Michael Smith published a paper in the Sumpti uh, Motion Imaging Journal. And that paper is entitled On the Calculation and Usage of HDR Static Content Metadata. As we speak, this is just a couple of weeks old. So for those who are interested to read the article, we'll put a link to the paper up on the screen here and uh, in the notes uh, for this episode as well. But it could be very helpful if you would explain the key points uh, of this journal article. Absolutely, love to. Um, so the key points are really is that we realize that we realize how important it is to provide relevant metadata to displays. Um, we've learned very early on in conversations with display makers that they don't like metadata because they don't really feel they can fully rely on it. So that kind of like stuck with us, and we wanted to make sure that whatever we provide is actually something that is reliable and that is meaningful so it can be acted upon. Now, we realized um, very early on that throughout the mastering process, despite the fact that you're trying to limit certain um, peak brightness levels to your content, there are a number of different reasons why certain so-called outlier pixels could be introduced, which means they are very bright pixels that are unintended, and they ultimately may mess up the calculation of the max CLL, for instance, because if you just run the calculation of max CLL based on what's the brightest pixel in the entire film, it might very well pick up that brightest outlier that is unintended. 
And what we're describing in the paper is a process that we've been using at Warner for many, many years um, that has been analyzing um, statistically the entire feature, and then we determine a meaningful max CLL. So it's really kind of like this outlier rejection. Um, some examples that we have in the paper is, for instance, like this big specular in an actor's eye that really just distracts from the actual story and we have no idea how it got there, but it's there. Or a certain light fixture might have a really bright pixel in it um, that is a natural outlier as well. So what we did for the paper is we looked at over 200 of our titles, HDR titles, and we found that outliers are pretty much in every single one of them. So we started using years ago um, a process to kind of calculate a meaningful max CLL, project those outliers. Again, coming back to the whole point and goal of providing more meaningful data to manufacturers. Yeah, don't rescale the entire piece of content based on one or just a handful of outliers. Uh, rather, something that is statistically meaningful um, uh, so that the viewer has a better experience and actually is seeing something that's a more faithful reproduction of what the uh, creative had intended in the first place. Um, you know, I, you mentioned something in passing, and, and uh, also we had talked about this in our earlier discussions. Um, and at that time, I learned that some set manufacturers are actually ignoring the content metadata. And, you know, that seems like a, a crazy question, but why would they do that? And uh, do you want to use this opportunity to make a request of those folks? I'd love to. Um, I don't know why they do that. I think there's a number of different reasons, potentially. I know some manufacturers, they don't really need that metadata because they calculate it on the fly in real time within their devices. Therefore, they are able to map the content in a more meaningful and a better way, which um, is not a bad thing, but not everyone does it. Uh, others um, may believe, as I said before, that any sort of metadata can't be trusted and they don't believe that it's accurate, so they don't want to rely on it. Um, that's kind of part of the reason why we released this paper and um, wish we had done it um, a while ago, but um, it, it's out now. What, years ago, right? <laughs> exactly. But it's really there that we're, we're purposely picking those values. Um, they're very deliberate, and we feel that if that information is unavailable, if you don't know what the max CLL value is, um, we actually introduced uh, a code value of zero um, that essentially says it's undefined. So again, helping with making that um, data and the metadata fields um, more reliable. I think for us, again, it's really important um, to provide meaningful information so that manufacturers can actually use it. And um, to a point, yeah, I'd love to ask manufacturers um, to please use it. Um, if the content metadata is available, even if it's static metadata, use it absent anything else. Um, it's better than um, scaling the entire content down if you potentially don't even have to. Of course, if dynamic metadata is there, is available, um, whether that's HDR10+, or Dolby Vision, um, absolutely use that because that is even more accurate because now we have that metadata and more on a frame-by-frame -frame basis. But yeah, whatever metadata you are presented with, um, you should make use of that. Okay, the word is out. Um, I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about the Ultra High Definition Alliance, 
or UHDA. Uh, this is a forum where you and I actually met. It was several years back. Uh, and at this point, you're now the president and chairman of the UHDA. So I wondered if you'd be willing to tell us a bit about the UHDA, you know, what the group is, and what its purpose and goals are. Absolutely. So the UHDA, I think, was founded in 2015. Um, and the original purpose was really to define what ultra HD actually means. I remember at the time, everyone was throwing all these terms out, HDR and white color gamut and UHD, and it meant something different for every person that you talk to. So what the UHD ended up doing is to work on a number of specifications, they're called UHD premium or ultra HD premium specifications. And those came out for content, for distribution and for devices. And it was really the notion of, this is what ultra HD, what an ultra HD experience should be. And if you meet those parameters, um, you could be sure that a consumer has a truly distinguishable um, experience compared to full HD, where you only have SDR, where you only have um, HD resolution, etc. Now, I think those specifications were released in 2016. And um, even to this point, there's only so many um, displays that are actually able to do it. The good thing is every year, it seems more and more displays are actually able to meet those criteria. And I think it was really useful for the industry to at least put a stake in the ground and say, look, this is what should an experience really should look like. So that manufacturers were able to actually move towards that uh, and try to meet those goals. Since then, the organization has been doing a lot of work um, on interoperability, um, getting all of those different devices to work. Um, there was, you might recall that as well, there was a lot of debate originally on whether or not that is it's within scope for the UHD Alliance or not. And, um, I think we rightfully determined that interoperability is an important aspect because it directly speaks to the user experience. If a consumer goes out and buys different types of equipment and puts them up and connects them and it doesn't work, or you don't see the right image, that's not a good user experience. So we've done a lot of work around that. And then most recently, um, we've been putting a lot of effort around an initiative that we called um, Filmmaker Mode, which is the notion of having a picture mode on a TV that um, meets the criteria from the creative community and maintains the creative intent throughout. Yeah, I was going to ask you about filmmaker mode um, because uh, I was involved in that also, and uh, it was kind of a surprising result. Uh, it, it's such an interesting situation among the different uh, set manufacturers, among others. Uh, it's an extraordinarily competitive business, and it seems like they're trying to differentiate their products uh, based on you know, their motion image processing or their, uh, you know, smooth motion. I don't want to say names because that identifies the manufacturer. But um, the ironic thing enough about filmmaker mode is that the request from the uh, Christopher Nolans of the world was and is to turn all that stuff off, <laughs> more or less. Uh, so maybe you can tell us the philosophy behind filmmaker mode uh, as it's been defined at the UHDA. Absolutely. So you're touching on a interesting point there, and that is that um, the creative community has been frustrated with 
the presentation of their content for quite a long time. Um, they know how it's supposed to look like in a theater. They know what it looks like on a mastering monitor. And then they go home and they look at what it looks like on an actual TV in consumers' homes. And they're like, this isn't the movie I made. This looks very <laughs> different. And it is something that kept coming up over and over again of many years. And it's like, I remember in 2014, um, there was a petition from um, Reed Morano, and uh, she had um, petitioned the CE manufacturers at the time with a stop motion interpolation um, initiative that she was trying to get a lot of signatures for, but unfortunately didn't get much more traction. Um, over the years, there were a couple of other kind of like public complaints from the creative community. Um, many might remember the um, video that Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie put out and said, look, hey, stop motion interpolation. It makes my movie not look right. All of these things are nice and good. What was challenging, and even at the end of the Tom Cruise video, is it was the call to action to go to Google and look up for your manufacturer on how to manually turn all of these things on. So when we, st when we started Filmmaker Mode, it was really the notion of, let's try to make sure that we develop something in collaboration with the creative community. Um, let's at the same time make sure that it's something that's really easily accessible for consumers. And the way we ended up defining it is that you either have a button on a remote um, or there's an automatic signaling so that whenever content is sent along that should be sort of watched in filmmaker mode, the display is able to pick up on that and then automatically switch into that. And then the third tenet in all of this for us was really, we wanted to simplify the message to consumers. Um, if you think about it, every manufacturer has this mode very similar to that. Um, the problem is it's on the one set, it's called movie mode and another it's cinema and the third it's true cinema and the fourth it's real cinema and what have you, there's all these different terms. So the creative community always had challenges to go to their consumers and say, hey, when you're watching my content, make sure you're watching it in blah, because it's different for every manufacturer. So that's why you end up with this Go to Google and try to figure it out. And we felt that wasn't the right thing. So one thing that was really important for us is to unify around a single name. And um, we fortunately were very successful with that. And manufacturers that are implementing it have to implement it under the name of filmmaker mode. So now it makes it a lot easier for the creative community to go out and message that to consumers. If you're watching film or episodic TV content, you should watch it in filmmaker mode. And that's the name of it. And I've actually seen that there are some sets coming out now that do in fact call it filmmaker mode. So uh, slow but steady progress to achieve that goal. Yes. Um, you had touched on interoperability and I wanna go back to that briefly. Uh, getting HDR content to display properly was initially quite a challenge. and We were spending a lot of time on that at the UHDA. And Quite a bit of work was done actually in your uh, Warner's technical labs and notably by you and by Don Eklund um, the, and, and others to categorize and solve the myriad challenges you know, with different content, different players, different cables, different TVs coming from different manufacturers. Getting all the pieces of a system to work together properly wasn't easy. Um, so in, in order to get HDR content to look right, a consumer had to make sure that any system had been properly configured, that 
your system had the right capabilities, each component had the right capabilities, that all settings were correct, that proper cables were used, and so on and so forth. So what's the current status? Is, is the situation getting easier and is it getting better? Your memory is remarkable. Yes, it was um, a lot of problems, especially early on. Um, I think the first um, kind of testing we did was um, all the way back in, I think, 2017. And what we ended up doing at the time was we bought pretty much a bunch of commercial Ultra HD Blu-ray players and pretty much 4K sets from each manufacturer we could find. And we hooked them all up and we started realizing that a lot of things can go wrong, all the way from imaging problems to audio problems to signaling problems. Um, where sometimes you got, you're supposed to get HDR, but you got SDR. Sometimes you got the wrong bit depth. Sometimes you got the wrong color. Sometimes you didn't get a picture at all. And um, same with um, audio, it was um, all over the place. And the positive thing is simply by doing the testing and identifying what the problems were allowed us to start these conversations with manufacturers on how to actually fix it. Um, for instance, um, one thing we noticed is that at the time, there were these two different HDMI bandwidth speeds. There was 300 megahertz and 600 megahertz. And that caused many problems because if you had a display that is um, performing or requires 600 megahertz in order to do HDR, but the source device sending you something over 300 megahertz connection, now you're not going to be able to get HDR. That's where all of these mismatches came from. And what um, we were able to do since then is to work with manufacturers, and many of them have implemented automatic switching. So they recognize what is required, and then they will automatically switch into that. Prior to that, the consumer had to go into some sub, 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 sub menu in order to turn off some very weird, at times, naming convention. It doesn't say, sometimes it said extended format or full format or sort of random explanation and it was very consumer unfriendly now since then we actually did make quite a bit of progress as i said i think in 2017 all of the things we tested resulted in about 53 percent of failure and the last test we did was in 2019 so about two years later um, that had dropped to only 26 percent which is still a remarkable number um, I'm hoping that if we were to do these tests now, another two years later, that that number has come down even more. But um, unfortunately, with COVID, we haven't really been able to uh, do much there recently. Um, what I would urge um, people that are interested in this is to take a look at uh, a white paper that the UHDA released about a year ago on that topic. And um, we can provide you the link for that as well. That certainly has a lot more detail on this. Okay, well, uh, it sounds like it's getting better though, and we'll provide that link uh, as well. So Mike, this is a chance for you to give a call to action for display makers and other contributors to the display exhibition ecosystem. Is there anything to which you'd like to see the industry give special focus or attention to? Absolutely. Um, I think what I would like to ask manufacturers is to focus on the user experience ultimately. Um, make things simpler for consumers, um, things like the interoperability we just talked about, things like automatic switching, which has been one of the main components for filmmaker mode as well. Um, when you start talking to a lot of consumers, 
they buy equipment, they hook it up, and they want it to work. They want to get the best experience out of that. And allowing them to do that is something that I think is really critically important. And um, giving them the options of seeing content the way it was intended, I think is equally important as well. Um, Mike, you know, un until today, most of our episodes have included representatives uh, from industry and academia whose primary work product relates directly to display products or the display industry. And it's been so helpful to get your perspective because uh, if there's one message from this episode, is that the display industry would benefit by thinking about the entire pipeline from the content creation at one end to the display output at the other end. So I'd just like to thank you so much for joining us today to give us this important perspective. No problem. Thank you very much for the invite. I really enjoyed the conversation. And as I said in the beginning, I think it's really important to have that collaboration between the creative community and the display manufacturers. Um, it's, I think, really critically important to make sure that we all understand each other and we all have the same goals of creating better user experiences. So I'm very much looking forward to continuing along those lines. And thanks for the opportunity to join you here today. Well, and that's all for today, folks. And uh, please don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell for notifications when new episodes are released. Thanks again, Mike. <laughs>